0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. This week's is a very special edition focusing on what the US election outcome may mean for markets and investors. I'm David Cole, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor. Joining me today to discuss what the outcome means for markets are Jerry Thomas, Head of Global Equities at Salison, Ed Smith, Head of Asset Allocation Research at Rathbones, and Mikhail Zarevze, Head of Global Equities at Aviva Investors. Thank you all for joining me. Mikhail, if we start with with you, have markets really been pricing in a significant US government stimulus to come in the months ahead? And if this election outcome means we are less likely to see such a stimulus, what does this mean for markets in 2020
1: and beyond? Sure, yeah. I mean, there was a degree of enthusiasm about um, the upcoming stimulus. Uh, not least because both sides pre election talked about it. And in fact, if you remember, there was a degree of competitive posturing whose stimulus is going to be bigger. Um, uh, I think in the ensuing partisan bust up in the run up to election, uh, I suspect Trump and Republicans made a judgment that signing, uh, or at least being very collaborative in signing a stimulus bill even the economy arguably needs it, uh, before the election will leak too much value and will leak too much credit uh, to the Democrat side, which is why uh, we didn't get the deal. Uh, but the intention uh, to do something was there. Um, the the na- nature of the deal might be a bit different. You know, It's, it's likely to see, um, we, we, we would see, we would have seen, depending on how the outcome goes, uh, more of a focus on sustainable development, a, a green deal, build back better type stimulus from the Biden camp, and a bit more conventional stimulus uh, from the Republican side, but the money probably would have been spent. Um, now, uh, w- what happens once the results uh, are set? I-, I think the stimulus conversation comes back. Uh, stocks were expecting that. If you look at cyclical industrial names, I mean, take Caterpillar, which had very strong results recently. Uh, this, uh, Caterpillar, which is a go-to stock when you think about large-scale construction projects, uh, is up 15% year-to-date. You know, in a in a country gripped by pandemic with concerns about recession, uh, that stock's been doing fine. It tells me that market is uh, thinking about stimulus coming up. And historically, Republicans had this reputation for uh, fiscal prudence. And you would have argued, you know, 15 years ago, that uh, the, the nature of the Republican Party is not to borrow and spend and let the markets do the work. Um, I think Trump had demonstrated he's a lot more willing to to lean in. I mean, even even uh, before COVID even when things were great and the economy was growing, when there was a mild um, semblance of a slowdown, he was leaning on the central bank uh, to become uh, more aggressive in, in uh, interest rate policy. So I, I would be expecting his camp, as well as Democrats' camp, to still be pro-stimulus when the dust settles. Thank you.
0: Um, Jerry. Um, in your role as a, a global equity um, investor, how had you been... Viewing the possibility of stimulus, was it something that you felt was baked into to valuations?
2: Yeah, I mean, yet again, the polls have proved to be uh, wide of the mark. I think the market as a whole had begun, really, since the first presidential debate, to price in something reflecting some sort of blue wave with Joe Biden being president and uh, the Republicans uh, ceding control of the Senate to the Democratic Party as well, and that really would have made it uh, much easier for very large stimulus package that was proposed by Joe Biden and we were talking about a package here that would have been two to three billion dollars in size, uh, no tax increases probably until 2022, uh, which could have lifted GDP growth by as much as five percentage points in 2021. I know we have great uncertainty now even as to who the president will be. Um, I'm sure if Joe Biden was to become the president he would still be proposing a large stimulus package uh, but I think his ambitions would be muted by the extent to which the senate would uh, provide the funding for that, an unfunded package with a Republican-controlled Senate would be uh, much less palatable. So I think it's logical the market is beginning to price some of that out. What are we seeing? Well, the inflationary impact of a fiscal package uh, really had pushed the US 10-year government bond up to 90 basis points, heading towards 100 basis points, there was expectation that if we had a Biden presidency with the Senate going Democrat today, uh, and that was confirmed that we'd probably seen 10-year bonds move forward. Uh, that hasn't happened, or 10-year bond yields rising, that hasn't happened, in fact, that's been priced back out. Um, And some of the the funding parts of the market, things like technology that was beginning to give way to a reopening trade, partly funded by, or on the expectation of fiscal, uh, has pulled back today. Um, I think that's entirely logical. I think the the main thing is we don't know what's gonna happen next. as, um, as one of your guests have already said, uh, there is an expectation that Trump would put forward some form of fiscal package as well, uh, and we will we will see if uh, if indeed if he's president the size of that and, um, and where that will be targeted. I think it's where the spending would have been. It's the main thing that's the focus for us today. You know, our expectation under a Biden presidency would be a very big push on climate change on renewables, and uh, logically we're seeing some of the European renewable stocks give up some of their gains year to date. Uh, this morning. Uh, We can talk more on that in a second, I'm sure. Thank you. Um, Ed, as an asset allocator, had um, prospects of a
0: US stimulus, um, been been something that was really central to your work in in recent uh, weeks and months, and and how might might that change um, with this perhaps changed political um, outlook from across the water?
3: Sure. So I think three of the major driving forces in markets this year have been uh, hope for a vaccine, supportive monetary policy and supportive fiscal policy. Um, uh, Those three pillars have enabled investors to look through some of the short term cyclical risks from the COVID recession uh, and and start some pricing for uh, uh, more normal times. Um, we think uh, that a, f- a fiscal uh, stimulus is likely, whatever the outcome. It's really just a question of timing. And we think one of the reasons why surveys of institutional investors have signaled uh, such uh, a fear of no outcome at all, which is possibly what we're staring down the barrel at this morning, we're not going to know the result until possibly a few weeks. I think one of the reasons why those surveys have registered such fear of that scenario is because it leaves a stimulus lacuna, if you like. And and that's uh, a little concerning because there are some signs in the hard data, some of the innovative high-frequency data that we've been monitoring, that a lot of the momentum from the extraordinary US recovery so far is rolling over, in some cases going in uh, to uh, reverse. So the economy is at a critical juncture. There is a risk that it enters a stop-start phase that both curtails consumer-driven growth and disappoints market expectations, and new stimulus would go a long way to helping investors look through those near-term risks. As I said, at some stage we are going to get some sort of fiscal stimulus. may not be enormous if it's not a democratic clean sweep, but it's likely to be uh, sufficient, and we would see any you know, big, sort of 10% fall in markets uh, if we have a protracted contested period as potentially a, uh, a buying opportunity, given that there is still uh, uh, that sort of monetary policy backstop in place if the economy needs it. Thank you. And Ed, if we continue with you for the next question, which really is about
0: as an asset allocator, um, has have, have you always felt, or has the market always felt that one of the advantages of investing in U.S. equities was that um, you didn't have to worry about the politics so much. You had two parties there that you know, were broadly pro-business. There weren't going to be any shock outcomes, uh, as might have happened in in the UK or might have happened in some European um, jurisdictions. Is that diminished by all of this uncertainty and the prospect of court cases to decide who's president?
3: Yeah, I mean that's a great question. I think I mean this election is so divisive, um, but I do think it's important uh, to realise that in fifty years of financial data, elections have. Invariably, been more noise uh, than signal, and those popular ideas that still sort of are being touted today that democratic presidents are worse for investment returns, worse for the economy, don't stand up uh, to scrutiny. And even sectoral ramifications are pretty hard to identify. What were the worst performing sectors during the Obama years? Financials and energy. What are the worst under Trump? What were the worst under Trump? Financials and energy. There are bigger forces at work but of course in those 50 years there aren't enough elections in that sample to refute the possibility that it could be different this time and with biden's heavily redistributional agenda and trump's populist protectionism yeah there's definitely uh, plenty of political risks that investors do need to keep their eye on but probably not get carried uh, away with uh, across the board. It is important to really establish what is driving markets, and you know, the, politi- the politics can only go so far to uh, influencing that. Thank you, Jerry.
0: As a global equities investor, um, to what extent are you um, are you thinking about this? Election result has, has been something that could in, impact your your investment decisions or your just your your long term perception of the U.S. market.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree with Ed. I think the um, the makeup of of the different indices matters a great deal. Uh, you know, the extent to which the S and P five hundred is made up of technology companies, uh, growth defensive companies that are you know high returns uh, with strong balance sheets is is probably more important than the political situation. Uh, to a large extent. I mean, that said, politics probably does matter a little more now than it did. Uh, For the first time, we're seeing some real questions about the way that the US political system works or perhaps doesn't work. Um, It may well be that this election, if it does return a Trump presidency again, will be again a president elected uh, without the majority of the popular vote. And there's going to be quite a lot of tension and we've seen a lot more tension, inequality, polarisation and the exacerbation of social media. So I think that will only continue to increase. Uh, The other thing I would just point out on political risk is I think that COVID-19 has really changed the way that governments have been forced to act uh, within the economy. We will probably see more regulation and more involvement from governments than we otherwise would have done. Uh, Potentially, that does slightly shift the political risk from Europe to the US. I mean, Europe, in many ways, Brexit post-COVID could be more cohesive than it had been before this election and the US more divided. So I think political risk exists everywhere, but as Ed says, it's easy to overstate it. Thank you.
0: Mikhail, has, has there all, always been, in in your view, um, um, a, a little bit in the, in the valuation of, of the US market that, that reflected um a more benign political climate? And could that little bit in the valuation multiple disappear with all of the uh, the uncertainty in all of the questions that we're all asking.
1: I think I tend to agree with, with the uh, prior speakers that on the on the bigger picture, uh, y- yes, there the, the was noise. Yes, there the are differences between the parties, but the the fundamental sort of pro market, pro democracy. Uh, I mean, if you if you think about political risks uh, in the global context, if you, I mean, I'm, I, my formative years as an individual and as a professional were in, in uh, post perestroika Russia. You know that's. That's not the kind of political risk we're talking about here uh, the policy risk uh, obviously was there for some time if, if you even the last fifteen years if you remember the abortive attempts to get tarp program going during global financial crisis uh obamacare you know, government government shutdown risk and sort of debt filling risk issues they were market moving but ultimately uh, not structural not short not long term events at the time so policy risk was then worth worth paying attention to and Try to analyze if you think you have, you have an edge on that, but the the, the bigger uh, sort of set of rules remain stable, predictable, and and so far remains so. I mean, you, there is a tail risk which is becoming a little bit more problematic. That this fracturing of the society and this growing dysfunction in the political process uh, maybe not break the the status quo, but when big decisions need to be made, and you know maybe climate change adaptation is one of those big decisions. Uh, the country's ability uh, society's ability to make those decisions in a sort of cohesive coherent harmonious ma- manner has been compromised by this divisiveness now we haven't we haven't had this tested yet but that's a that's a concern on the back of my mind but not that's not a three year problem if that if that makes sense
0: thank you mikhail that's great jerry although we over on this side of the pond um, have, have talked a lot about the performance of U.S. Um, mega cap stocks, technology stocks, etc. Actually, small and mid cap U.S. names had, had done quite well in the run-up to, to this election, uh, whether that was a, a function of stimulus expectations or something else, I don't know. But um, as a global equity investor, how do you think about U.S. small and mid um, in, in light of current events or current uncertainty?
2: yeah i think uh, one of the one of the key aspects of of when you think about the performance of small caps against large caps is is what small caps aren't i mean in many cases small caps are not healthcare uh, they're not platform technology companies that have uh, extremely strong market positions and the extent to which those parts of the market being favored particularly technology meant that small caps are always going to get left behind uh, they're more domestic more cyclical uh, we will i think see regardless of what happens politically uh, more regulation and more oversight of uh, the large cap technology companies. Those companies have performed very well. Many of them have benefited from uh, the COVID-19 uh, impact on, on the wider market over the course of, of 2020. And they will suffer tough comps in 2021. So I think it's logical, uh, particularly if we do get good vaccine use, that you get a broadening out of the US market. That will benefit small caps to the extent that it doesn't benefit some of those companies that have really enjoyed uh, a better relative um, conditions for, for their stock price in 2020. You know, I think improved trade relations with China could also be a small a small beneficiary for small caps if we were to see uh, a Biden presidency. Uh, but that said, small caps would also suffer from um, the increase in taxes if that did come through under a Biden presidency as well. So, you know, I think it's in many cases, it's really about what they're not rather than what they are. Thank you. Um... Mikhail, uh, how, how do you
0: think about uh, small and, and mid cap US? Is it uh, is it an area that you found interesting on an ongoing basis? Does the uh, political um, uncertainty change how you view it, or really are the uh, are the mega caps the, the only game in town for you? Uh,
1: no, definitely not the only game in town. I mean, we're we're all cap investors, uh, and we, we're very bottom up and uh, detail orientated in how we uh, we pick stocks. Um, and, and that makes you mid-cap biased because, you know, you, you look at the whole map, not the large caps. You're not market cap biased in how you define your universe, which means you look at smaller companies and medium-sized companies as well. And uh, echoing the, the, uh, what's already been said, it, it has, been a very, uh, has been a market dominated by a factor and by a sector. And some of that is um, uh, uncertainty aversion. And some of that is uh, COVID effect. A lot of that is momentum. Uh, we, we, uh, I mean, if you look at the data on what makes up a daily trade in the U.S., and I just have those numbers in front of me, um, the the long only fundamental investors year to date were about six percent of the daily volume. This is us, if you like. That we are only six percent as price makers on a day to day basis. Um, and that's uh, and the fundamental hedge funds, which are maybe shorter term but stock pickers nonetheless. Uh, are only nine percent of the daily daily volume. So together we make about fifteen percent. The stock pickers of all stripes. And um, in 2015, for example, we were thirty percent of the daily volume. Uh, meanwhile, retail is now twenty percent of the daily volume. And the thing about retail investing, you know, which is a well documented phenomenon this year, you know, the the, the Robin Hood traders, etc., is you know they they go to if you like big brands, they go to uh, stocks that people talk about. They go to Tesla and Apple and and Alphabet and Facebook not to some specialist 20 billion or 15 billion market cap company that they haven't heard about. Um, so we, we found it's, it's a bittersweet feeling. On one hand, we see a lot of really interesting change on the company level that is mispriced because people are not looking that way. But on the other hand, when this change is manifesting and improving results, the market isn't reacting because people are still not looking that way. It just means we have to wait a bit longer for the fundamentals to be priced in, but you know we have the time horizon to do that. The The, the joke we we cracked a couple of times, I'm not sure if it works, given English is not my first language, is, you know that expression, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? Sure. It felt a little bit like that uh, with some of the smaller companies' results. They do great work, but no one seems to care, at least for now, we, we just have to wait for a bit longer. Thank you, um, Ed.
0: Um... From an asset allocation point of view, have smaller mid-cap um, uh, U.S. equities been on your radar and in the context of the, of the politics, perhaps smaller mid-cap companies are more focused on the U.S. domestic economy uh, than our, you know, mega-cap global brands. What does the election result mean in, in that context? If we get less stimulus, for example, will that mean uh, those companies have less support?
3: I mean, potentially, yeah. Uh, like um, like Jerry, we tend to view large, mid, small cap through the lens of their sector compositions. And uh, yeah, almost a quarter of the S and P four hundred, the mid cap index, is financials and real estate. Right uh, now, that's double the weight of those sectors in the S and P five hundred, the large cap index. And those sectors have performed poorly for many years yeah, and uh, are structurally constrained looking forward. So you know, financials with the Fed likely to hold down the yield curve for the next few years. macro controls and regulation only likely to increase. You know, Governors Brainard, Clarida have been pretty clear about that. If rates are low, you need to work harder to stop financial bubbles. That means more regulation, um, regardless of who's in the White House. Um, so financials are not a sector we like, similarly real estate structurally constrained, big question marks over you know, what, what's going to happen to um, sort of, you know, central business district pricing after COVID. Um, so yeah, there are sector reasons why we're not that keen on, on at least the mid caps uh, right now. In terms of political risk, yeah, there may be some more insulation, but the, 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 the large cap index is still, much more domestically focused than most other regions' large cap uh, index um, indices. So um, while Trump doubling down on uh, anti-trade policies, spreading his trade war beyond China, um, yeah, is something really to be uh, to, to be mindful of. You are still getting some insulation relative to markets or, uh, elsewhere across the globe, if even if you do go for the large cap index. Thank you. Um,
0: Mikhail, I think all, all three of you this morning have, have talked about sectors that could potentially suffer, or indeed in stock price terms already have, and for, as a result of this uncertainty. But do you take the view that there are parts of the US market at the sector level, or, or or the stock level, if you wish, that um that are relatively insulated from all of this uh, political risk and and can just you know get get on with their get on with their their business and, and not really worry about who's in the White House.
1: Market has a muscle memory of what you know which sectors Democrats or Republicans are good or bad for. So, you know, defense Democrats are bad for defense, healthcare, you know, Democrats are, uh, are bad for healthcare, for example. Uh, I think both parties dislike big tech at this point, but for slightly different reasons. So we have to go a little bit deeper, and, and uh, as we do that, we can we have to ask the question: you know, what do you think political outcome, one way or another, does for this business? And also, already priced in. And we, we see a little bit of a disconnect. For example, even in defense, to pick a controversial subject, uh, the, the world actually has become a more dangerous place. You know, the uh, Russia and China are both mobilizers and activists on the world scene. Some long-forgotten issues like um, missile defense and mis- uh, offensive missile programs are, are back as a as an item of spending. Um, but one of the one of the biggest aspects uh, of of defense challenge uh, is uh, cybersecurity for both uh, defense and civilian government purposes. And if you find a defense contractor that uh, specializes on that they probably will do well under uh, either administration and if they've been sold off a little bit on the expectation of biden win then you pick up that stock at a better price um uh, tech uh you know a big issue uh what i observe uh, is that even i mean we, i listened to this uh, summer's uh, congressional deposition of the big tech ceos uh, I, it was interesting to see the Democrats were a lot better prepared and did an, a lot more detailed work and a lot more detailed challenge to those companies than Republicans who largely had ideological issues with the sector. Uh, but the best, the, the, the harshest thing that came out of that is DOJ lawsuit against Apple, or sorry, against Alphabet uh, paying Apple and others to, to make their search a default search option. The interesting thing is if they win, uh, which everybody seems to think they're unlikely to because the legal cases are difficult. If they win, uh, what it might do for Google is it saves itself about 10 billion dollars per annum in marketing costs because it it'll pay it'll pay a fine for sure. Investors don't care about that, but then it'll stop paying commissions to to Apple, which is a big swing in profitability for both uh, Google and Apple. So we have to go into those details and, and and pick stocks where where individual business model at the price it's trading at today. Is, is relatively insulated from the political risk. The, the last thing we want to do, frankly, and the last thing we've been doing is betting on the outcome of the election uh, in our stock picking. Thank you. Ed,
0: um, as, a, um, as an asset allocator, um, do you, if you wanted to create a defensive bucket within your US equity allocation, is, is that something that you think can be done and is one of the things you can defend against political uncertainty
3: yeah sure i mean i I agree with michael the the key i think at at the moment given all the uncertainty is to look for companies where the politics is more noise than than signal which um, you may perhaps want to look for some 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 lower beta less correlated stocks and factors as well i think in terms of the um the sectors that are particularly vulnerable to the election result we've got to try and look for the Um, bypass some issues at the moment, given the uncertainty. And there aren't many, but there are some, and that's not entirely appreciated by the market. So it's infrastructure spending um, is a bipartisan issue, drug pricing, which I don't think is fully appreciated, and anti-China trade policies, which I also don't think is fully appreciated. So we think of the Democrats as being tough on drugs pricing, and they are, of course, Biden wants to allow Medicare to negotiate on pricing and Medicare accounts for 45% of of U.S. Big pharma sales. But Trump passed four executive orders in July um, on drugs pricing uh, that he hasn't acted on yet, but um, but will will act on if he gets re-elected. And those executive orders included widening policies like implementing an international pricing index, uh, introducing more competition. Uh, and then on trade, you know, U.S. stocks with high sales to China, they've correlated with Biden's polling and Bookie's odds this year. I think that's a mistake. You know, Biden has, in his policy, uh, he has made in America tax credits. He has offshore and tax penalties, possibly carbon border taxes. You know, Biden is just as tough on China as Trump. He'll just take a more rules-based internationalist approach to combating uh, them. Thank you, and Jerry. Um, when you're uh, constructing
0: portfolios at uh, Harrison, um when you think about U.S. equity allocation, if you want to be slightly have slightly less uh, beta or slightly more defensive and uh, exposure, how do you how do you think about that? Does politics come into the discussion?
2: Yeah, we're, we're thematic, so we start all of our conversations about opportunities in global equity markets uh, from the point of view of themes. You know, I think there are a few of those themes that will be discussed in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, we've already talked a little bit about healthcare. You know, the impact of, of aging, the need for uh, more innovative approaches to, to healthcare, particularly post COVID. Now there's huge change happening, lots of innovation within the healthcare industry. Uh, and the industry has has actually been under the cosh of it, stock market wise, because there has been political uncertainty. There are senses that with the Senate um, not having gone decisively to the Democrats. Perhaps some of the risks, the short-term risks around healthcare, uh, will abate from here, and that will give us an opportunity to pick some stocks thematically within health in healthcare. The other knee-jerk has been a, a quite a sell-off in renewable energy stocks, climate change stocks today. I, I can understand that, given where positioning was, and just the scale of some of the investment that Biden was proposing, and the uncertainty as to whether he's present or not sees us uh, unwind some of that as a market today. But I do think the impact of climate change on a 10 or 20 year view is the most enormous investment opportunity thematically. and uh, This would give an opportunity um, to really increase investments and find new opportunities around uh, climate change adaption and mitigation. Now, uh, the final thing I would say is that, you know, I think a vaccine and the vaccine news that we should get through November and December um, really is the most important thing uh, that will lead us to the parts of the market that represent the opportunity. Uh, we've seen a narrow, a narrow market, as we discussed earlier, the broadening out really is dependent on opening up a cyclical recovery if that's not going to come from an enormous fiscal package it's going to have to come from you know the reduced lockdowns the reopening up the opportunities that that brings uh, and I think that's probably the part of the market that's uh, least well priced today
0: thank you Michael um, it used to be said that when, um, when the US gets sick the rest of the world catches catches a cold um, but over the past decade since the global financial crisis it's arguable that the us is no longer the marginal buyer in the global economy that's now that's now china um but do events in the us and on the us market have the same impact on the rest of the world um as they did in the past
1: i think so it's, it's still um it's still a very large economy it's still it's a very internationally connected economy uh it's a setter of interest rates uh in the world's most important currency, it's it's the the nexus of the global financial system. As we've seen with you know with the number of banks that's been on the wrong side of the U.S. A DOJ, has got a extraterritorial jurisdiction over the global financial system, largely still. So yes, absolutely, it matters. And and just to pick up on the comment just made on, on the renewable energy, you know today we, we, we've uh, if I look at uh, at my watch list, some of the biggest fallers today are. A, a Chinese manufacturer of solar panel glass and a Danish manufacturer of wind turbine uh, um, uh, equipment, which are clear uh, consequences of the of the speculated election outcome in the U.S. So, so yeah, U.S. matters. It's a it's diverse liquid market. It's it justifiably deserves a lot of our attention. Thank you,
0: Ed. As an asset allocator, um, does your exposure to other markets is it strongly influenced by what's happening in, in the U.S. at any given time or, or can one almost cast the U.S. out now as a as a as a separate event to managing it so much?
3: No, we think it is pretty important. I mean, so Rathbones, we're global multi-asset investors and from a global perspective. I think this election is really about whether policy uncertainty, global policy uncertainty will continue its dramatic ascent of recent years. Um, And so huge increases in uncertainty, uh, particularly around what American protectionism or unilateralism means for foreign export-oriented economies. That's augmented the outperformance of US equities versus global equities. Um, And it's also augmented the outperformance of the dollar as well. And that's because uncertainty has become greater outside of the US than within it because the US is a more insular economy with a lower ratio of trade to GDP, and that's benefited US assets relative to non-US assets because its stock market is less cyclically sensitive than many others, it's less sensitive to the global trade cycle. So if Biden um, gets elected, European stocks and the Euro are potentially the biggest winners on a a relative basis, uh, at least.
0: Thank you, Jeremy, you mentioned your um a thematic investor. Uh, to what extent do those um, themes be influenced by what's happening in, in the US or, or are, are they kind of uh, se- separate or immune from
2: that? Yeah, to a certain extent themes do lead you to certain parts of the world because that's where the opportunities are. It's pretty difficult to invest in climate change and green energy without investing in Europe equally. It's very difficult to invest in tech without investing in the US. So you know, as a global investor, uh, we're looking ultimately to own stocks, not themes, but um, we have have to go where the stocks are that are the the best opportunity in each of those themes. Uh, One area that's possibly an exception is emerging markets. Emerging markets are heavily affected by the US dollar uh, and international and trade relations. Uh, You think about the outlook for Mexico, for example, and its proximity to the US and the impact of the dollar on on how goods flow and at what price. Uh, Certainly emerging markets are affected by Uh, what happens in the US and there's also one tail risk that I would just bring in particularly in this uncertain time as to what may happen politically in the US and that's Taiwan Uh, something the FT has been writing about as I'm sure you know Uh, there have been you know an increase in tension certainly between China and Taiwan and some fairly explicit comments made by China as to where they see Taiwan within the Chinese system over the long run now there has to be a small possibility that China takes advantage of the current situation and does uh, begin to get a little more aggressive, a little bit more interventionist in Taiwan. Uh, I've put the probability of that happening certainly down 20% or below, but it's uh, it does bear watching.
0: Thank you for that, Jerry. And more broadly, thank you to Ed Smith from Rathbound Jerry Thompson from Saracen and Mikhail Zarevze of Aziva Investors for their time this morning. Stay tuned as after the break. In the second half of the podcast, we
4: look at the week in the advice market news. Welcome back to the second part of this edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Following that
0: discussion of the various US election permutations, we now turn to matters closer to home with our regular review of the week in news in the advisor market. Joining me to examine the most important issues in advisor land this week are Rachel Mortimer, regulatory reporter at FT Advisor, and Amy Austin, our pensions reporter at FT Advisor. Rachel, if we come to you first. Hello. CMCs are always an issue close to advisors' hearts, and this week the FCA gave us an insight into which supervisory areas they will be focusing on in the coming months within the CMC and mortgage market. And what have they got to tell us?
4: Yeah, sure. So two um, dear CEO letters went out last week, and these are always a really good um, indication as to what the FCA is going to be looking into over the sort of coming months and year. Um, They sent two out, one was uh, to mortgage intermediaries, this was a little bit calmer than the one sent to the cmcs uh i think the one sent to claims management companies was in my opinion quite damning (laughs) um and and it's a summary of the sort of the faults that it found in that sector but for the mortgage firms um it was still raising issues surrounding sort of fees and interesting actually a point surrounding coronavirus crisis where uh they were concerned that some advisors were providing services without the relevant experience in a sort of attempt to top up their income um But yeah, as I said, the the CMC letter, I'd say the the list of faults found there was probably a bit longer.
0: (laughs) Okay. And and what type of things are worrying the regulator about uh, CMC's uh, behaviour and conduct right now?
4: Sure. So I think in summary, uh, it it said that it was still finding a poor attitude from many CMCs to their regulatory obligations. Obviously, this is a relatively new area of supervision for the FCA. Only assumed regulatory control um, of that sector last year. Um, But to name a few of the uh, of the issues that were listed. Um, so the regulator warned of misleading, unclear and unfair advertising um, and a poor disclosure of pre-contractual information about fees um, and also the availability of free alternatives for consumers to make claims, which has always been sort of a bit, a bit of a bugbear and increasingly so for the industry that actually CMCs aren't necessarily making it clear that consumers can free of charge go to the FOS and go to the FSCS directly um, there's also uh, it repeated its concerns surrounding some advisers, their own CMCs are joining another CMC and ultimately claiming on their own poor advice. So they're profiting from that twice. Um, that was flagged by Megan Butler, the uh, director for supervision at the FCA in June. And this was repeated again in the letter. Um, that's, a really, that's a particularly concerning uh, pattern, which, which they're starting to pick up on here.
0: Thank you. I, I, I think um, that, was, that was something that we certainly saw something of last year. Advice firms going, um, going bust and then the same individuals popping up with the claims management company to um, get some of the compensation of the people that they had um, yeah. treated badly in the first place. So what is this uh, um, action from the FCA this week? What does that actually mean for advisors at the current time?
4: So, uh, avid readers of Financial Advisor will have seen uh, in this week's, this week's edition um, that there has been calls for reform, uh, particularly around surrounding uh, CMC fees from advisors. It follows the case of one client um, who was vulnerable and uh, had an investment in organic investment management, um, was paid about 30K, I think it was, by the FSCS at the end, but about £11,000 of that went to the CMC. Um, uh, which is outrageous, It's it's, it's it's particularly considering his vulnerability. It's a particularly um, sad and worrying case. So there has been calls for reform um, from advisers for tighter rules from the FCA surrounding this area. Uh, Something likened to that of uh, the contingent charging ban, which was recently introduced in the pension transfer market and certainly some sort of fee cap. Um, to, to stop, you know, that, that was, I think it was 36% that that client ended up paying paying out to a CMC um, from his overall compensation, when ultimately he could have gone to the FSCS himself for free, um, or, you know, we are aware of some CMCs who are charging a lot, a lot less than that.
0: Thank you. And then we turn to the always exciting world of pensions. Amy, hi. Hello.
5: Good,
0: thank Hello, everyone. joining. This week, HMRC data revealed the degree to which savers have accessed their pension pots during the pandemic. How have withdrawal rates fared during this time?
5: So, surprisingly, actually, savers have been um, quite good and quite cool and have refrained from raiding their pension pots and actually taking the at unsustainable levels. Um, so HMRC in the third quarter of this year, so that's from July to September, um, has seen a 7% drop in average withdrawal rates, um, which, you know, it was from, it was 6700 on average, and now it, which is down from £7,200. So, you know, savers are being extremely cautious, you know, they're not thinking, oh dear, you know, my finances aren't in good shape at the moment, where should I go Pen- to my pension pot? which, you know, is what the industry has warned about. This is not what they want to see happening. They do not want to see pension pots raided because otherwise, you know, we're going to have this massive issue when people hit retirement.
0: Thank you. Um, I, that, that is that is reassuring that people have, have other uh, options or, or outlets at these difficult times. But do you think now that we're going to have a second uh, lockdown nationwide, that we could see more people dipping into their pots?
5: Hopefully not. I think that you know these figures from last week um put put us in bed, you know that people are understanding what they can and what they cannot do with their pensions. I mean, nobody's saying do not touch your pension if you don't want like but they are you know, be sensible if you were, I don't know say taking ten percent withdrawals, you know before the covid crisis it's probably likely that the way pensions have been hit you cannot continue taking 10 percent because you know there's less in your pot it's not going to work you're going to run out of money a lot quicker and you know you could be 70 and your pot's emptied which is not what you want you know people sometimes don't realize that life expectancy is going up you know we are living longer you know there's people living to 105 you know if you're your pot's running out when you're 70 that's a long time to go you know with no work and people you know rely on their pension you don't necessarily want to sell your house to get funds you know that's that's why pensions are so important so hopefully this puts you know, puts us in good stead that people will not be running to their pots also I think where it's a second lockdown people are less frightened than what they were back in March you know we're kind of all a bit like, oh, another lockdown. Like, we're used to this. We're used to mm. going through the motions. I think just the only thing that's different this time is that financials are a lot more strained because, you know, we've been through this lockdown and, you know, there's redundancies that happening out there. I'm pretty sure we're going to see loads more redundancies in the second lockdown because people mm. just, it's going to be a lot harder to cope. That's the only way that people are going to need finances more.
0: Thank you. Most Monday mornings I feel 105 years old, but I'm
5: not.
0: (laughs) what what can advisors do to help uh, those clients who who are looking at their their pension pots and their finances in in the current climate and have, have concerns?
5: I think advisors are very good here because, you know, if you've got someone panicking, you know, I mean, myself, I got my pension statement through, I thought, oh, wow, that is a that is a substantial drop you know that's a lot of money gone but <laughs> me being a pensions reporter and writing for advisors I know that I've got a very long time to make that back up and I shouldn't panic and be like right, quick I'm going to you know put it in a fund which is really you know risky to get all- that's because we work in this industry we are kind of financially savvy and we know that so I think you know People who have advisors will be very calm and collected, you know, let their advisor deal with it, know that the best option is to sit, put, wait, see out the market falls and go from there. So I think that's you know, that's
4: what our advisors could add here. I think this is where having an advisor really comes into its own as well, is to have that, you know, that reassurance and that sense of security And where, like, exactly as you just said, in the first lockdown, there might have been, and when the markets were dropping, a little bit of a rush in in, in terms of of advisors trying to contact their clients and make sure they didn't do anything rash. I mean, hopefully now, as you say, it's all going to be a little bit calmer because we do feel like we've sort of, you know, been here before. Um, and with that, I guess comes you know the, the threat of scams, and we know that that they went up over the first lockdown with, with um, fraudsters trying to prey on the vulnerability of consumers. Um, but you know now that perhaps consumers, especially advised consumers, are a little bit more clued up around this. Um, hopefully, we'll see less see less people falling victim to that.
0: Indeed, and actually, the while the markets fell fell off a cliff in in March, they they kind of bounced back since so hopefully that pension statement looks a little bit better cool.
5: um, I, I certainly hope
0: so amy because we're in the same scheme and i'm a little older than you <laughs> okay well listen thank you both for joining me and thank you all for listening to this edition of the ft advisor podcast tune in next week for more thank you hi i'm
3: daniel founder of pretty litter